This is the Meiji at 150 podcast. I'm Tristan Gruno. On this episode, I'm talking with Dr. Jennifer Pro, Associate Professor of Humanities and East Asian Studies at Valparaiso University. Dr. Pro is the author most recently of Meiji Restoration Vacation, Heritage Tourism in Contemporary Kyoto, published in volume 30 of Japan Forum in 2018. Dr. Pro, thank you so much for talking with me today. Thank you so much for having me. I'm delighted to be here. With this being the Meiji at 150 podcast, we've been talking a lot about the history of the Meiji Restoration. And certainly one of the things that we want to be concerned about is the historical memory of the Restoration as well. And with the sesquicentennial of the Restoration in Japan, many local areas were celebrating their ties to the Restoration and especially their local Restoration heroes. Uh, Kagoshima, for example, proudly advertised their connections to Restoration heroes Saigo Takamori. Aizu celebrates the people who are actually fighting against the Restoration, the Tokugawa loyalist samurai. You wrote recently about another of these Restoration heroes and how they're remembered in Kyoto, and that is the figure Sakamoto Ryoma. For those of us who are unfamiliar with Ryoma, can you briefly introduce him to us and tell us what role he played in the Restoration? Sure, sure. Sakamoto Ryoma lived from 1836 to 1867, and he was born and raised in Kochi, which was the capital of the Tosa domain. He came from a fairly low-ranking samurai family and from a wealthy but fairly marginal domain. And he was one of a set of sort of growing population of young samurai that were dissatisfied with the state of things in the Tokugawa period. He's most remembered for being a kind of nascent politician. He worked with Nakoka Shintaro to broker an alliance between two rival domains, Choshu and Satsuma, which eventually led to the overthrowing of the Tokugawa government and the Meiji Restoration. So he's known for being a nascent politician. He was a proponent of fighting off the West or keeping the West at bay by adopting Western-style government and technology, at least later in his life he was. And even a few months before his death, he outlined an eight-point plan, which anticipated several later Meiji government initiatives, including restoring the emperor to power, establishing an assembly, creating a constitution, and a modern military system. And all of those ended up being things that were a part of the Meiji Restoration, although not directly because of Ryoma. He's also often heralded as an entrepreneur because he also started a small shipping company called the Kayantai. It was kind of on the model of the British or the Dutch East India companies, but much more localized. So he had a shipping company based out of Nagasaki. Those are his main connections with the Restoration, but he's probably most famous, perhaps, for being assassinated in December 1867 in Kyoto, just about a month before the Restoration started. And as you're saying, you remember it as for his assassination, but especially for brokering this tie between Satsuma and Choshu, the, the two domains that then topple the Tokugawa government and establish the new Meiji government, really being that kind of central character brokering that piece. But what I've always found somewhat fascinating about him is is he actually starts his career as one of these shishi men of high purpose who are effectively terrorists. Uh, And in fact, there's the story of his conversion by Katsu Kaishu that I've always found very fascinating. 
right. he's from the domain of Tulsa, but these commemorations that you've been writing about were in Kyoto. So how is it that Dioma gets to Kyoto and what is the connection that he has to Kyoto. Yeah, and I should start by saying I'm not a Dioma scholar. <laughs> so I'm writing a book on tourism in Kyoto. And I came to do this work on the Dioma because I was quite surprised to find as I wandered around Kyoto or started doing this research that I kind of couldn't escape him. There are images of him all over and statues and several places commemorating him. So, of course, when we think about the restoration, we actually tend to think about Tokyo much more frequently or the modern changes in Japan. Uh, but, of course, important things happened in Kyoto as well there at the end. And Yoma was a part of those the deal that he brokered between Satsuma and Shoshu did happen in Kyoto. And that's one of the main connections to Kyoto. So in March 1866, he was in Kyoto to broker this alliance. And he came back to the Teradaya Inn in Fushimi. And there was a famous incident where he was almost assassinated. This was the first attempt on his life. So there was that incident in 1866 that's fairly well known about him. And the second is then, again, as I said, he was assassinated in Kyoto in December of 1867. And that took place in Kyoto proper, really in an area that's now a bustling area on the eastern side full of restaurants and shops. So those are his main connections to Kyoto, actually, are two assassination attempts. But then, as you said, this important alliance that he brokered, that did happen sort of there in Kyoto. And so how is it that Kyoto is, is repackaging the memory of Dioma in tourism? You said you're writing this book about the tourist industry in Kyoto. So could you lead us on a, a bit of a tour around Kyoto of these Dioma sites, we might call them? And I just want to clarify, actually, at first, that it's always tricky. I say Kyoto is commemorating Dioma and that's happening in Kyoto, but it's not systematic. One of the things there's lots of systematic things happening with tourism in Kyoto, promoting world heritage sites and other things. But these sites to Dioma really are much, much smaller scale. So there are commemorations and sites and museums, but they're run more by local family, smaller local historical associations. They have signs commemorating them that are official city signs, but they're not part of the big official promotion of Kyoto tourism. And that's one of the things that I like about them. So we'll start in Fushimi, which is just south of Kyoto. At Ryoma's time, Fushimi was where the Satsuma compound was. And near it was an inn called the Teradaya. And that's where Ryoma stayed when he went to Kyoto. Other guests from Satsuma who weren't quite high level enough to stay in the compound frequently stayed at the Teradaya. And in the incident in the Teradaya that's being commemorated there now, in 1866, there was this attack on Adioma's life. And we have a lot of Adioma's letters. He wrote his sister and other friends lots of letters, and a lot of those we still have. And so we have these rich accounts in his own words of this event. As the story goes, Dioma and his friend Miyoshi Shinzo had come up from the bath that night. So they got back from Kyoto after having brokered this deal, and they take a bath. And they go upstairs to the second floor where their room is, and they're getting ready for bed, and they heard a noise. It sounded like footsteps on the floor below. And suddenly, a young woman, Odio, a maid who worked in the inn, came running up the back stairs from the bath to warn them that the enemy was coming for them. 
And as Dioma tells the story, he grabbed his swords. He was dressed for bed, so he didn't have them with him. And a six-shooter pistol. And that becomes a really important detail in a lot of the commemorations. Again, in his own words, he crouched down towards the rear of the room and waited. A battle ensued, and Dioma shot several rounds, but he actually received sword cuts on his hands, and that makes it difficult to reload your gun and shoot. And so at a lull in the fighting, the two men ran out the back and down an alley and and hid in a storehouse until it was safe, at which point Miyoshi Shinzo went to the Satsuma compound and went and got help for Dioma. And then Ryoma was reunited with Oryo, the woman who had warned them in the Satsuma compound. And so one of the things that we always hear when we hear about this Teradaya story is about their love. So Ryoma had gotten Oryo a job at that particular inn, and they leave together on a boat from Fushimi to go to Kagoshima. And that trip that they took there where Ryoma's healing is called the first honeymoon in Japan. And that's a detail that's always brought up when this story is told. So that's the first scene at the Teradaya. And that's being commemorated in a number of ways. The Teradaya is, it's not a functioning inn right now. It's more like a museum to the historical events, but it's still run by the same family. And you can actually book a night there now. That's sort of happened in the last four years. So you can stay where Ryoma stayed, although you can't stay in his room because there's sort of a, a shrine and a commemoration there, but you can actually stay at the inn. And the whole inn museum tells basically this same story, this story about Ryoma and Oryo. There's lots of images of Oryo throughout the museum. So that's one site. The second event took place in December of 1867 in Kyoto proper on Kawaramachi, just north of Shijo. And again, this is this main bustling area of the city. And at this time, Ryoma and his friend and colleague Nakoka Shintaro, who is an important figure in the restoration as well, were assassinated by Tokugawa loyalists. And they were staying in the house of a friend, a soy sauce merchant in Kyoto, the Omiya shop. And they stayed there frequently. And again, this is the story from Nakoka. They tended to stay in the storehouse in the back because it was a little more hidden and there was kind of an escape route. But on this particular night, Ryoma was feeling ill, so they were staying in the warmer second floor of the main house. And because he was feeling ill, Ryoma ordered his favorite chicken dish from home called Shamo from a restaurant. And a little bit later, there was a knock on the door and they thought it was the food being delivered. But instead, three men rushed in and attacked them really quickly. So Ryoma was killed instantly, but Shintaro survived for two days and then was able to tell this story. But then he died as well. So both of them died within a month of when, I mean, Meiji Restoration takes a while, but within a month of what's marked as the first date, January 1868. There's not a huge site where the Omiya shop was. Again, it's on this bustling street. If you're just walking down the street, it's really easy to pass. It's just a sign in front of a shop, and that shop has changed hands several different times since I've been doing this research. It was a travel agent, and then it was a Circle K convenience store, and last time I was there, it was a sushi shop, which surprisingly to me didn't even mention Ryoma even. There's just a small sign, although more stuff has been added recently. There's sort of three or four signs in that location now. 
The third place would be the place where their graves are, which is not too far away in Higashiyama at the Ryozen Gokoku Shrine. And that shrine was set up right after the Meiji Restoration in order to commemorate all the people who died in fighting in the process of the restoration. And there's a bigger area for Shintaro and Ryoma in that shrine. So those are the main tourist sites we're thinking about when we think about Kyoto. mentioned the name Nakaoko Shintaro several times and they were both assassinated together and they're both enshrined at, at this shrine with the larger area. I've always been somewhat surprised that it's the Ryoma who really gets commemorated even more and is much more of a popular figure in contemporary Japan. And I wonder if, is he getting a little bit of the Paul Revere treatment, you might say. And, you know, we think about a person like Paul Revere, whose historical presence has really been amplified out of proportion as the story gets told over and over again. Right, right, it, right. it seems like Dioma completely overshadows Nakoka Shintaro. And I'm curious if you have any thoughts on why that might be. I mean, there is this story by Shiba Ryotaro, this famous book, Dioma ga Yuku. I wonder, is that part of, of the reason why he's such a big figure in contemporary Japan? Yeah, I think you're right. And I had never thought about Paul Revere in that connection. But yeah, Shiba Ryotaro's Ryoma Gayuku definitely is a part of Ryoma's story. And I think if we're comparing him to Nakaoka, it's hard for me to say why he's commemorated, although there's something about these two attacks on his life and this romance that's always told with he and Oryo. There's something really romantic about the way his story is always told. But it's not particularly new. The first novel about Ryoma came out in 1883, so just under 15 years after he was killed. So it doesn't only come up in the 60s and 70s. And his story gets told sort of over and over again. There's some versions in the 20s and the 30s. And each time the general contours of the story are the same, but what's being drawn forward changes. Christian Tagsold has a great article about this. And he talks about the ways in which Roma's been cast as democratic in the 20s and then patriotic in the 30s, peace-loving right after the war. And then my favorite is as a businessman in the 80s, right? He's got this, <laughs> he starts the cayenne tie and he's the quintessential businessman. So it's the same story, but it, it carries these different meanings depending on what moment the story is being retold. And that's a great lesson in, in how historical memory can be politicized in light of contemporary events. Yeah, and he's he seems to have, I mean, I don't know I, who else to compare him to, but he certainly has a very long life in this sense. It's not just historical fiction in terms of novels. One of the reasons why he is so prevalent in Kyoto when I started this research in 2012 is because in 2010, he was the star of the Taiga drama, the NHK Taiga drama that year was Ryomaden or Ryoma's story. And these are these big historical dramas that happen on Sunday nights. They've been going every year since the 1960s. And there's always a year-long drama. It starts with New Year's and it runs for a full year. They're always historical dramas. And lots of them are set in the Bakumatsu or the Sengoku period. 
But Ryoma Den was wildly popular, and Ryoma was played by famous heartthrob actor Fukuyama Masaharu, and Ryoma and Masaharu's face showed up all over certainly all over Kyoto and I think other places as well. One of the things that's really fascinating to me about these places that are commemorating Ryoma now is that they still have Ryoma Den posters in it. So posters from a drama from six years ago still show up in any of these Bakumatsu or Ryoma sites. So definitely those historical dramas that are, that are on television also tell this story as well. And I imagine they're they're doing that to capitalize on the popularity of these shows, knowing that many of their tourists are going to be coming in because of the show. Absolutely, absolutely. One of the things that was so fascinating to me about the Teradaya the first time I went, again, the Inn in Fushimi, was that there's lots of ways they tell Ryoma's story, and there's posters from Ryoma Den and earlier films and movies about him. But there's also like a little shrine area and you can buy an Emma, which is a little votive plaque and you write a wish or a prayer on it and then you hang it there and leave it at the shrine and later it gets burnt. And so the prayer goes up to the Kamisama. But you can leave those at the Teradaya, even though it's not a shrine. It's not even where Dioma is buried. And people leave them with messages that are specifically for a Dioma. So they'll say things like, I want to you know, work hard and do well like you, or I want to fall in love just like you and Oryo. So there is something definitely about his story that's been recast in popular culture that's speaking to people still today. And you mentioned that your broader work is looking at historical memory and tourism in Kyoto. And, and so in an earlier episode of the podcast, Dr. Alice Tsung was talking about how there is this kind of irony in, in the early Meiji period where Kyoto almost imagines itself as a modern city. It's pushing ahead, just like Tokyo was at the time. In fact, could even point to some of the early infrastructure projects, the Biwa Canal, for example, one of the largest civil engineering projects in Japan in the Meiji period, it's in Kyoto, which does seem somewhat ironic when we think of Kyoto's image today as you know the, the bastion of traditional architecture and traditional culture. So what role does historical tourism and this tourist advertising that we've been talking about play in constructing this image of Kyoto today? Yeah, that's a great question. And I love Tseng's book on modern Kyoto, And you're right, in the Meiji period, the city was really fully embracing modernization. She talks about it being the first trolley stops. And you have this wonderful area near Sanjo that's got Meiji style or what we would call modern red brick buildings. And that didn't stop then. If you enter Kyoto, you come into this beautiful station designed by Hara Hiroshi, built in 1997. And it's almost, while I'm not an architectural historian, but a beautifully postmodern building. And when you exit the station, you see Kyoto Tower, which people either vehemently love or hate. Uh, But it was built in 1964 when the Shinkansen was built specifically to bring all the tourists to Kyoto after the Olympics. So you have a lot of contemporary building in Kyoto. In 2012, when I was starting this research, they built a new aquarium in Umikoji Park, pretty close to the station. And that was really controversial. Why an aquarium in Kyoto? This isn't Kyoto style. 
this isn't like real Kyoto you would you would hear. So the city definitely has this rich history and reputation for having rich history, but it's a thriving modern city. And yet it's also a city that has paid a lot of attention, especially since the 90s to special historic districts. There's a lot of rules and regulations about, especially in the central part of the city, how high buildings can be so that they don't block the view of the hills or the other historic buildings, what kinds of materials can be used in particular areas, how streets can be paved, what kinds of colors you can use in signs. So Kyoto may be the only place where there are actually brown and gold McDonald's signs and brown and white Lawson signs right near the historic districts. So it's a city that's paid attention to cultivating, reshaping, creating a historic atmosphere really all along. So you have both these sides of the city. And you mentioned that the Shinkansen, the bullet train is open in 1964 to, to bring all the tourists, presumably over from Tokyo for the 1964 Olympics. But I'm curious, how, how is it that they're attracting those tourists? Are, are they presenting the city as this traditional place or, you know, oh, come to Kyoto to see the traditions, the, the complete opposite of Tokyo, for example, or, or what exactly was the tourist advertising at that time? Yeah, I think that's exactly right. Or I don't, I don't even know if they really did a ton of advertising. I mean, at the time, JTB would work with tour agencies in the US. Uh, so if you wanted to go to Japan, you mostly just had these set packages. And that was exactly the thought for the Olympics. We have to get everybody to Kyoto so they can see the history. So Tokyo will showcase all this modern, amazing building we've done in the post-war period, right? The recovery. And then we'll take them to Kyoto where they can see the real rich history and culture of Japan. And that kind of dichotomy was being set up, I think, directly in that sense. And then what role did World War II play in this, if at all? I mean, after all, Kyoto was one of the only major cities in Japan to not suffer from the American firebombing campaigns. You look at some cities like Toyama, 98% destroyed. I guess what I'm asking is, is this something that Kyoto was advertising even before the war? Or is it just you know somewhat of a happenstance after the war that now they had something that they could advertise that these other cities now lack? Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, I think that certainly it shapes Kyoto today that it wasn't firebombed. It was on the list for the atomic bomb early on. Um, and that gives the city much more historic look and feel than many places. You're right. I think when I talk to tourist personnel in Kyoto, they always say we never have to advertise Kyoto to Japanese. In some ways, one put it to me, they've been reading Kyoto advertisements since, you know, elementary school literature class. So people go to Kyoto for history and culture because it's got that reputation. But I think that it would be really different if they had rebuilt. I mean, I don't know how they would have rebuilt. Maybe they would have drawn on traditions or not. But the fact that it was really spared shapes the contours of the city today, for sure. And as you mentioned, Kyoto was initially on the list for the atomic bomb target sites. In fact, right. uh, was listed as one of the highest priority targets until this intervention by Secretary of War Henry Stimson. Uh, and the anecdote about this is that he had gone to Japan in the pre-war period and fallen in love with the traditions of the city, which I guess does suggest that from the American perspective, or you could say from the outside perspective, Kyoto already was 
viewed as this center of, of traditional architecture and, and Japan's traditional culture. And, and I think that's certainly true, too, if you look at the accounts of Western visitors to Japan as early as the Meiji period. They all talk about going to Kyoto to see all of the traditions of Japan. But it's really interesting that you say that you don't have to advertise it that way domestically. I wonder if there was even in the pre-war period, were they advertising it that way for foreign visitors? Yeah, definitely for foreign visitors. And it's one of those things that, I mean, it's really funny because of course there, well, Tokyo was firebombed, that there is still a rich history in Tokyo as well, (laughs) right? Right. And there's a lot of modernity in Kyoto as well. But those two cities get dichotomized that way, I think really frequently and certainly did in the pre-war and still today. When people tell me about their trips to Japan, which people do when you're a Japan scholar, they always remember Tokyo as the sort of uber postmodern city. It's all glass. And then all they remember from Kyoto is the wooden buildings and the historic districts, even though there's tons of concrete buildings in Kyoto. They will sometimes remember the power lines in Gion and how ugly those were. But we tend to dichotomize these two cities in that way, I think. You were mentioning some of the very strict regulations put in place in Kyoto to to preserve the historical facades of these buildings, or in some cases, preserve the the historical buildings themselves. And one of the the gripes that I've heard coming from people who live there is, you know, why do we have to live in a museum? We feel like we're in a museum here. We can't rebuild in a new way. I mean, there there seems to be a, a tension even with this historical preservation at the same time that the city is embracing it. Yeah, that's right. I think there's a there's a lot of different tensions. So on the one hand, you have a whole machia or traditional townhome restoration movement and a sense that the city was letting the traditional buildings be abolished for high rises. So you, at the same moment, you have wanting to preserve the city in the face of development. And then you have people wanting, like you said, not to live in in a museum to have choices over how they build their buildings. There has been a trend in the last probably 10 to 15 years to build new buildings and allow new materials, but play around with the aesthetic, some of the traditional architectural styles of traditional buildings and newer materials that that mimic the traditional buildings. So you're seeing a lot of building going. I mean, there's a lot of building right now, too, because of the 2020 Olympics. And a lot of the hotels that are being built and stuff all take on some kind of Kyoto-esque architecture or atmosphere. So there's a there's an attention to that in a way that's complicated, not merely traditional, uh, allows for perhaps perhaps more comfortable living, but then promotes a heritage or, or a traditional atmosphere in ways that I think are interesting. I know there's a, a similar tension playing out in a part of Tokyo that I'm much more familiar with, the city of Kawagoe, which is up northwest of Tokyo. And you know it kind of has this historical reputation as Koedo, small Edo. And there's even part of Kawagoe that they've preserved as Kurazukuri Street with all these old mm. Edo period warehouses. In fact, they're actually modeled off early Meiji warehouses from Nihonbashi, but that's another issue. <laughs> but as opposed to Kyoto, they don't have any sort of strict regulations on preventing reconstruction. And so it's always been just kind of a collaborative thing amongst the store owners on that street as a way to bring people Uh, into the neighborhood. 
And in fact, new owners come in, tear down the old building and put up these regular, what we might think of as more modern concrete buildings. So th there's <laughs> tension even here because there isn't these kind of regulations. Again, it poses this question of, you know, what's best for the neighborhood in terms of tourist attractions or then what's best for mm -hmm. the private owner too? Yeah. I mean, the tourism industry just really does drive the city and there's, there's a lot of pride there in the city. And then there's a lot of inconvenience. There are between 53 and 58 million tourists a year in Kyoto each year for the last four years. Those are their peaks. And it's a city of 1.5 million, right? So 55 million tourists for a city of 1.5 million. That it has effects that it shapes the buildings in the city, but and the flow of traffic and everything. So and but then it's also a major part of the city's economy and a point of pride for lots of people. So it's complicated. Since you've been studying so much about tourism in Kyoto and researching tourist sites, can I ask you what, what are some of your favorite sites in Kyoto? Yes, yes. I think my favorite thing about Kyoto is the way that you can see the hills on all three sides from almost anywhere in the center part of the city. I just love the views of Kyoto. But it's funny, usually I get asked the opposite. I get asked, tell me the secret off the beaten path place that no one <laughs> right. knows about in yeah. Kyoto. And I usually have to say, yeah, well, I spend all my time like walking through Higashiyama to see what tourists are doing and how it's changed. And I really do like the Higashiyama area. So on the Eastern Hills, that walk from Kyomizudera all the way up to Maruyama Koen is one of my favorite things. And it changes throughout the years. I think that's my favorite place, even though it's probably the most on the beaten tourist spot <laughs> in all of Kyoto. <laughs> the Meiji at 150 podcast is hosted by Tristan Gruno at the University of British Columbia in Vancouver, Canada. This podcast would not be possible without the cooperation of the UBC Center for Japanese Research and the technical assistance of the UBC Faculty of Arts, ISIT. Find out more about the Meiji at 150 project, including the Meiji at 150 lecture series, digital teaching resource, and workshop series by visiting our website, meijiat150.arts.ubc.ca. Thank you for listening.